Hi, I'm Peter Adamson, and you're listening to the History of Philosophy podcast, brought to you with the support of the LMU in Munich and King's College London, online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode will be an interview with Andrew Arlig, who is Associate Professor at Brooklyn College, and we're going to be talking about theories of parts and wholes in medieval philosophy. Hi, Andrew. Hi. Thanks for coming on the podcast. It's my pleasure. Before we get into the issue about what medieval philosophers say about this topic, maybe you could just say something general about why philosophers nowadays are interested in parts and wholes. What's so fascinating about this as a philosophical problem? Um, it's because most of the things we encounter or think exist are complex and therefore uh, they're, they're going to have structure, they're going to have elements and bits that they're made of components. And um, as soon as you have these complexity, these bits and elements and so forth, you're going you're gonna to be invited to think about how they're put together. You're going to be invited to think about the dependence relations that hold between them. So do the bits depend on the whole? Does the whole depend on the bits, uh, the elements? Um, if so, in, in what way, you know, philosophers can, can get quite sophisticated about this and come up with you know, fine-grained distinctions and kinds of dependence. And all of this is, you know, again, prompted by the, the mere fact that you have complexity. So the dependence issue would be something like, uh, do all my parts need to exist in order for me to exist? Yeah, something, something, you know, that's a very basic way of raising the issue. If I depend on all my parts, um, then surely that has implications for my identity over time persistence over time and so forth right because so, it seems like if i cut your hand off i kill you right um, because if fact, one of your parts disappears then you disappear right and in fact even medieval you know medievals will talk this way they'll say um you know when socrates clips his fingernails have we committed homicide all right that's something of peter Abelard, the 12th century <laughs> philosopher raise, he raises that question his answer is no mm-hmm. but you know he raises that question in part because he is thinking about relations of de- uh, dependence between the parts and the whole Okay, well, that brings us on to what we really want to discuss, which is what medieval philosophers have to say about this. Nowadays, in analytic philosophy, there's a kind of industry of people who work on what's now called myriology, the study of this issue, parts and wholes, which is from the Greek word for part. But presumably, there isn't a kind of sub-discipline of philosophy done by medieval philosophers which is about parts and wholes, is there? Or is there a kind of context where they naturally raise this problem? Well, I think it's anachronistic to say that they um, have, that they that some of them devoted their energies to myriology, the way a, say, professional metaphysician might do it nowadays. But, but there are contexts where they do linger over questions about parts and wholes. There's, there are places in the commentary tradition in particular um, where where you can predict that they will stop and t- talk about this. There's, um, for instance, in the logic handbooks um, uh, throughout the Middle Ages, uh, there's usually a discussion about parts and wholes that's prompted by Boethius's On Division. Boethius also talks about these things called the topics, and one of the topics has to do with parts and wholes. And so they'll rehearse what Boethius says, and they'll comment on that and elaborate on that. There's also, um, it seems to be standard stock questions in um, the physics commentaries where um, Aristotle says something in book one of the physics about 
the problem of the part in the whole and a very standard question you find is whether the whole is its parts. Um, and it's, it's raised by this sort of almost incidental remark of Aristotle, but they um, elaborate it and often elaborate it in quite interesting ways. So the medieval philosophers themselves think of this as a basic issue that arises in both logic and metaphysics. Then. Yeah, it's very important to them because most things in their universe have structure and, mm -hmm. and they've got to figure out the ways in which uh, these things are composed, structured, and so forth. Right. Um, and they're very, they're very um, keen on understanding that uh, there are a variety of different components and things, and there are going to be, therefore, a variety of different ways in which the parts related to the whole and the whole related to the part for that reason. Yeah, actually, that was the next thing I was thinking I might ask, because on the one hand, it seems like an obvious uh, concept. So you've got a whole, it's made of some parts. But on the other hand, once you start thinking about the different kinds of things that there are, for example, there are immaterial objects, which mm -hmm. may or may not have parts. There are artifacts, in other words, things that are made by people, which have parts where you can swap out one part from another very easily. There are organic right. holes, which have organic parts, so like the hand case or the fingernails. Right. And right. so in general, it seems like sometimes the parts have a more or less casual relationship to the whole, whereas in other cases, it seems like the whole couldn't exist without exactly having the parts that it has. And so in light of this variety between the different types of part-whole relations, is there anything that the medieval thinkers would say we can say in general to characterize what it means to be a whole and what it means to be a part? The most general thing you could say is that anything that's the product of a division is a part of some kind or other. But because you have different ways of dividing a thing, um, you'll have different parts that um, arrive mm -hmm. after the cutting. Um, or you know, they'll also say, look, anything that um, can be put together is a part. And therefore, you know, and, and, and as a correlate, I mean, you should understand that whole and part are relational notions. So you have a part only if you have a whole, and you have a whole only if you have parts. So, um, you know, a whole is also understood to be anything, if you can, anything that, that kind of embraces a bunch of things as a whole in some way or other. And anything that can be divided up into smaller bits will be a whole for them. The other thing that's sort of quite general that you can say is that um, for them a part, and this is something that's, that's interesting, especially if you do contemporary theories of parts and wholes, a part for them is always in some way or other less than the whole. So it, it's a smaller bit. I mean, I'm, I'm speaking quantitatively, and there are ways in which that's, you have to extend that in, in a kind of metaphorical or analogical sense to get what I'm after. but. Um, there's always some way, even even in cases where, like universals, where there's a way in which the part is the whole, but still, even then, the parts, if you had only one of the parts, you still wouldn't be grasping the entire thing. Do they think that uh, just any kind of random assortment of things could be considered as the parts of the whole? So, say, me, the Eiffel Tower, and the number four... Could those be parts of a whole just by sort of divining it? Now, so you've you've just articulated a position in contemporary Mariology that's called universalism. The only person I know of who countenances that is Peter Abelard, this 12th century philosopher. Mm -hmm. Most others 
will back off from universalism um, or the sort of completely unrestricted um, composition. That said, the, the, and one of the reasons why they'll think this is that many of them think that God, for instance, can't enter into any kind of whole. Um, so you couldn't have a whole consisting of me and God. Oh, right. Okay. Um, so there's would, at least that, one restriction. So there's at least one restriction on yeah. universalism. And usually um, the restriction stops at around heaps. So, they, so someone will, will talk about piles or <laughs> heaps of stuff. And they'll say that that's, that's a unity of a sort. So often this, this discussion of wholes, by the way, um, is bound up with the notion of unity, being a one. And so someone will say, well, a, a pile of things is, a, is one in some weak sense, but it's less of a one than, a, say, a chair, uh, you know, some kind of artifact with structure that's nailed together, glued together, whatever. And then a chair is less of a one than, say, you or I. Um, you know, were substances. So they do. So they draw these ontological distinctions that way, and so they have grades of unity. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so this goes back to something I was saying before, which is that there are different kinds of parts and holes. Right. And so what you're saying is that it's not just that there's different kinds; it's also that they're kind of rank ordered. So they're the really good examples of holes, like maybe organic bodies or animals, right. plants. Right. And then there are quite poor examples of holes, which would be like a pile of beans or something. Well, it's just a hierarchy of being. Um, and this is, this is um, you know, coming out of the Aristotelian idea that substances are the primary beings, you know, and, and, and the, the, the traditional distinction between substances and artifacts and then other accidental unities mm-hmm. that, that Aristotle talks about. So a pile, again, is an accidental unity in a very kind of weak sense. You know, it's just a bunch of stuff that's in the same location at the same time. But for most of them, uh, uh, I think almost to, to the last one of them, even a table or a chair is, um, strictly speaking, an accidental unity um, and not a substance. Because it's just being held together by nails and not yeah, by some right, physical principle. Right. The, you know, the, the form that's holding them together is, is still accidental. So is that what led Avalard to adopt the universalist position? Because if you think, well, this is just a kind of continuity that, you know, you can have less and less unified holes. So why not just say, well, in the limit case, any old collection of things, even if they're not anywhere near each other. Yeah, plurality of stuff. Um, yeah, Abelard, like I said, Abelard seems to have allowed that there's a weak sense in which any kind of plurality. Now, I, he doesn't raise the issue of God. But mm-hmm. any kind of, he says, you know, any kind of plurality, even me and a particular instance of paleness could be a whole in some sense of whole. Because, uh-huh. you know, they're two bits and you can just sort of draw a ring around them and that's a whole. Right. Um, but, it's, you know, it's a rather uninteresting whole. It's not as interesting as, say, a chair or Socrates. Um, right. So, you know, he says this, it's almost kind of a throwaway remark in his treatment of parts and holes. What then should we say about this case? If I cut my hand off, then obviously I don't die. So why doesn't that immediately prove that I don't depend on the existence of my parts in order to exist? In general, the answer is yes, I don't depend on my hand. Um, There are different ways to divide me up, which means there are different sets of parts you need to consider. And so uh, the hand may be the wrong sort of thing to fixate on when I'm thinking about whether I depend on my parts. It's a very cl- common distinction to say that things like hands, flesh, eyes, and so forth aren't necessary, that, you, that some of them can be, gone, be taken away 
Um, Aristotle even discusses this in his uh, book, his Metaphysics, Book Five. He has a whole ca- um, discussion of being mutilated, and that's linked up. It's, it follows right after his discussion of the word "whole" in in chapter uh, Book Five. So mutilation occurs can occur when you chop off a hand or something like that. But then there are other kinds of parts that I have, which are often called substantial parts or essential parts. Sometimes the terminology is uh, principal part, and those I do need all of those. Uh, so it would be an exist. example of something like that. Well, um, sometimes uh, earlier on, uh, principal parts were identified as things like my head or my heart or things like that. Oh, right. So it just happens that I can't cut your head off without destroying you. Right. Um, So sometimes the distinction is made that way. Later on, uh, uh, when people talk about the essential or substantial parts, they're talking about the substantial form and the matter. So the soul. You can't lose your soul. Right. Um, So so, so they'll they'll often reframe the question and and say, well, um, we need to think about... the, The answer is, for some kinds of parts, yes. The whole depends on the parts. For other kinds of parts, if we consider those, usually wholes don't depend on those, especially when we're talking about substances like you and I. That's sort of a traditional answer. One thing that you mentioned before is that they often raise the part-whole topic in the context of thinking about logic. Mm-hmm. And something that maybe is a little bit surprising for us is that they think about for example the genus species relationship so for example animal and human right. or animal and giraffe right is my favorite example <clears throat> they would think of the species like human and giraffe as parts of the genus animal so is that just a metaphor or i mean what sense can we make of this idea that we have these two abstract concepts one of which is being conceived of as a part of the other yeah, there's this, there's this long tradition, and again, I think it goes back to the Greeks, of thinking of universals as in some sense a whole. I think intuitively it's this, that, hey, uh, when you're talking about human, what you're talking about is all the, you're kind of corralling all the humans together and you're making some kind of generalization that holds of all in each of them. And so in some sense it's a whole. Um, in fact, you know, uh, the Greek word whole is part of the Greek word for universal, katholu. Mm-hmm. So, so this kind of notion that these are related, um, it, it, it goes back, you know, quite a ways. Um, and actually, we talk about individual instances of a universal as particulars. Right. And in Greek, right. the word that sometimes one of the expressions they use actually has the word for part in it as well. Right. And actually, Boethius remarks on this in On Division. He, he actually notes that etymology and... Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, in one of the translations, it, particular is is the the part part of particular is italicized for that reason because <laughs> Boethius seems to be making that point that hey, a particular in a way is a part of the universal that em- embrace it or encompass it. I mean, actually, it notes that those words embrace, encompass, contain those also suggest that we're talking about something that's at least in some interesting sense like a whole, like a whole like a crowd or like right. a pile of things. Um, so the reason, I mean, what I asked about originally though, was the relationship between human and giraffe to animal. Right. So it seems like what you're implying is that the relationship that you and I have to the species human is going to be analogous to the relationship that the species human and the species giraffe have to the genus animal. Well, am, animal embraces both species. 
So, so it's like a ever widening concentric. And, you know, if you think of you know individuals and you draw a circle around them, uh, so you have two groups of things with circles drawn around them, and then the animal just sort of draw. You draw a circle around the two groups, mm-hmm. and and you get you know, ever widening holes, so to speak. Right. Um, and so, in theory, the biggest hole would be something like the genus of things or genus of existence. Well, no, they won't say that because they all know they're Aristotle and being or, or entity is not a genus. Right. So, so we'll stop the, with substance. That's the highest genus. That's the highest genus for that category. Right. Because then the accidents don't fall under that. Right. So there's actually no hole that embraces everything. Is that right? Uh, well, it would seem if they're going to follow through on this Aristotelian doctrine that there's no highest genus that. So here's another case where you wouldn't have universalism in this context of abstract entities. Oh, because you mean you can't just take you don't the, have a big you don't have a super genus or a super class that is all the things that exist. Right. Okay. So the, actually, that that means that they don't think of holes as working in quite the way that we think of, that sets work. No, because no, presumably we would be happy with the notion of the set of everything that there is, but there's no whole that's the whole of everything that that's, there is. That seems right. That seems like a fair characterization. Uh, that's interesting. Okay. Um, what you were just saying about the relationship between individuals to species and species to genus gets us back, I think, to something we mentioned at the beginning, which is the question of interdependence. Right. And there is a problem here about whether the species depends for its existence on the existence of all the individuals. And mm-hmm. in some sense, it seems like it clearly doesn't, right? So when I die, the hopefully a long time from now, the species <laughs> human won't go out of existence. The, among the tragic aspects of my death will not be the perishing of the species right. human. But on the other hand, it's a little bit harder to tell whether the genus animal somehow depends for its existence on all the species because you know they seem to kind of come together so presumably there's a kind of uh domino effect here so you might think well if the genus will exist then the species will exist and if the species exists then all the individuals exist or you could go the other way if the individuals exist the species exists and if the species exists the genus exists but it's not quite clear whether that's actually true right so what do the medievals think about this I mean, the question is raised, certainly. Um, so so they're, they're attuned to these kind of worries. And then you know, what, what precisely is the, the dependence between the individuals and the species? Because, you know, Aristotle does, at least in the categories, encourage us to think that, you know, he says that you and I, for instance, are primary substances and the species is a secondary substance. That would suggest that there's a kind of order of dependence from that the species depends on us and then you know the genus is even further out so it depends it's it's even got a more tenuous dependence relation but that can't seem quite right as you pointed out um when i die the species shouldn't be compromised so they are you know they're they're worried about that and they come up with different stories for how this individual and the universals are related to one another you know it's and it's hard to say yeah, they, there's one party line at right. that point. But presumably they're all going to at least say that the continued existence of the species doesn't depend on the existence of every single one of the individuals. They, they're going to want to say that. I mean, um, in fact, this is one of Abelard's criticisms of a view that was apparently had some advocates in the 12th century 
the view he critiqued was um, that the species was actually just a crowd, um, that it was, um, to use a bit of technical language, um, the species wasn't a universal whole, it was an integral whole, just like a crowd is an integra- integral whole. And one of his criticisms is, well then, if you have that, if that's what a species is, is that, if that's what a universal is in general, then when I or you die or Socrates dies, the species seems to change, but that can't be right. So this would be like saying that the only w- that all of my body parts have to keep existing in order for me to keep existing, which seems false because you could cut off my hand and I don't die. Yeah, so it's a very similar kind of reasoning. Right. Um, and so whatever, whatever the case is, the species and genus can't be even if they depend in some way, I mean, here, here's one way they, they're often going to say or speak. Um, they'll say, the species human wouldn't exist if there were no humans, ever. But uh, provided you have some humans, even if they change, even if the individuals you know, are born and die, you'll have the species and the species won't depend on any particular individual any particular set of individuals existing but if there were no giraffes at all there's no species giraffe if there uh, maybe a way to put it is if there had never been and never will be giraffes there would be no species giraffe do they get into the question about what if there's only one yes because they worry about the phoenix yeah right right do you have a distinction between the individual phoenix and the species phoenix because there's only ever because only because by yeah definition is only ever one and you know they're they're not just mythological examples they they raise the example of a sun right there's only one sun as far as their worldview goes so do you have a species sun in addition to the individual sun right and usually the answer is well even though there is in act only one sun or only one phoenix you could always there's there's no reason why you couldn't have two, and therefore you have a species that covers both the actual and possible individuals. Right. So staying with this issue about universals, one of the things that I've been talking about in the podcast is this famous problem of universals, and maybe one way of describing the problem is whether universals are some real thing out in the world. That's kind of a oversimplistic way of putting the problem and it seems to me that if someone says well look universals are just holes of parts and the parts in this case are the individual instances since the individuals are real clearly the universal is real Mm -hmm. so I was wondering whether thinking about universal particular as a whole part relation immediately gives you a realist position on the problem of universals um, that's an interesting question. In part, my answer is that the way we now draw the line between realism and nominalism may be not the best way to think about the medieval problem. So here's an example. Abelard, again, has a very famous discussion, which is in translation, if, you, you know, if your readers wanted to follow up on it. Um, and in it, Abelard talks about... Um, he describes a number of positions that we would now call nominalisms, or you know, using, say, David Armstrong's categories, would now call a nominalist position, which he identifies as a realist position, precisely because his opponents have picked out some thing, some, to use the Latin term, race, out there, that the universal term corresponds to. Um, 
Now, here's an example. David Armstrong would classify that position I referred to earlier, which uh, this 12th century view, which is sometimes called the collection theory of universals, the view that says what the species human is is just the collection of individual humans. David Armstrong would call that a class or a, a muriological nominalism, whereas Abelard, because of the way he construes things, describes it as a realism. Because the whole is really out there. Because the whole is really out yeah. there. Okay. Um, but there are problems with it. And his own recommended view is that you identify, um, that, you, that you associate the property of universality only with terms. Um, so he takes a, very, a classical anti-realist position um, in part. One last thing I wanted to ask you is that we've been talking about this in, as it were, as a purely abstract philosophical issue. Mm -hmm. But one thing that's, of course, always mm -hmm. notable about medieval philosophers is that they have theological worries. And this seems like a case where that would happen. If you are a Christian theologian, which they are, <laughs> then if you start thinking about parts and wholes, you might think, oh, well, I've got to explain the Trinity. So mm -hmm. you might be tempted to think that the persons of the Trinity are parts of the unified Godhead. Or you might worry about Christ because Christ is both God and man. So you might think of divinity and humanity as two parts mm -hmm. of the whole that is Christ. Do they explicitly apply these part-whole worries to these theological cases or other theological cases? Um, they, they, bring in, they bring in premises. Well, first I should maybe back up and say that uh, almost any Christian theologian who talks about these issues will say, by the way, we're having a speculative discussion of this, but these are mysteries at the end of the day. And so there's going to be a, a point at which maybe reason's going to give out, or at least unaided human reason's going to give out. They then will, uh, they'll, you know, then often go on and have very sophisticated, philosophically interesting discussions of how this is supposed to work. Now, the Trinity case where you have three persons in the Godhead, there's going to be a problem because of absolute simplicity. Um, many of the discussions of absolute simplicity, they're very, in many of those discussions, they're very, very adamant that there are no parts, really, no parts. I mean it, no parts <laughs> in the divine. You know, so, so, so any way in which you might want to try to divide up the Godhead, not having it. Now, here's where the Mereology comes in in the Trinity. The, the, the reasons that they give for why you can't have absolute simplicity um, include, well, look, uh, if you had parts, then you'd have to have some cause for that unified them. But God's not caused, certainly by not anything outside of his own essence. So that can't be. Or another interesting thing, and this, this picks up on, you know, this, this has applications for mundane objects that will say, Look, if you have parts, then the Godhead would depend on those parts, but God doesn't depend on anything. Um, now, here's why this might apply to, to mundane things. Um, there is an interesting question about whether I depend on my parts, or at least some parts. Um, they use this thesis to defend absolute simplicity. Now, for the Incarnation, there maybe Muriology gets a bit more traction because um, you do have just two distinct natures. You're trying to cram them into one person. And so they'll think about, okay, well, how can I do this? Interestingly, someone like Aquinas, uh, I looked at this just recently, he said, no, actually, you do have composition, but you don't have parts. So you have a composition, but not with respect to parts. You have a composition um, merely, as he says, with respect to number. 
Now, how you cash that out, I'm not quite sure. But then again, maybe this is one of those places where we have run out of things to say as philosophers. Yeah, I think that's actually a very distinctive feature of the whole medieval approach to these theological issues. When they talk about it philosophically, on the one hand, they want to get as far as they can using reason. But on the other hand, they really have to make sure that they don't get the whole way to explaining it because then they've compromised the mystery aspect of it. Right, right, right. Uh, okay, well, I think that's enough about parts and holes for now. Uh, this obviously was only one part of the series of podcasts that is the history of philosophy. So please join me for another part in which I'll talk about more medieval philosophy next week. But for now, I'll thank Andrew Arleg very much for coming on. Thank you. It was my pleasure. And please join me again next time on the history of philosophy without any gaps. <laughs>